When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And when the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and there became a great nation. The Egyptians treated us harshly, imposing hard labor on us. The Lord God brought us out of Egypt and brought us into this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given. This is the word of the Lord. Deuteronomos, so named by the rabbis who lived after the time of Alexander the Great, who discovered there were more Israelites who could read, write, and understand Greek better than they could read, write, and understand Hebrew. So in translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, a translation they called the Septuagint, they call this fifth scroll Deuteronomos, the law, second time around. Because they realized that Deuteronomy was a reworking of Exodus. You and I know that the book of Deuteronomy was written 500 years after the time of Moses. It does not appear in any records until the time of King Josiah. A hundred years after the northern tribes had been decimated by the Assyrians, when a similar fate was soon to come to the southern tribes, the priests decided maybe they could sway King Josiah to meaningful reform if they produced what they called a fifth scroll of Moses. Scholars today believe the ink was still wet the morning they brought it in and said, look what we found in a closet in the temple last night, a fifth scroll of Moses. So when these words begin, when you come into the land, they are written as if Moses was writing them, but in fact he was not. It was 500 years later. They've already been in this land for hundreds of years. But Josiah took the scroll seriously and attempted meaningful reform. Things were much better until the Egyptians marched up and killed him in a battle at Megiddo, and things went steadily downhill again from there. Let's look at this passage. Scholars believe it is one of the oldest confessions of faith in Judaism, and certainly much older than any of the nine affirmations of faith that appear in our Methodist hymn book. Number one. A wandering Aramean was my father. You know where Aram is? Aram is in southernmost Syria. If you can visualize the Sea of Galilee, the Golan Heights, the Syrian border just a few miles away, just across that border, the territory known as Aram. 
when God asked Abraham and Sarah to leave Ur, a little community in the Mesopotamian Valley, modern-day Iraq, and go westward, they settled in Haran in Aram. 1,800 years after Abraham and Sarah, Jesus of Nazareth still spoke Aramaic. A wandering Aramean was my father. Now, what does that mean to these people who are supposed to be reciting this after they've just offered the first fruits of the land at the temple in Jerusalem? Our ancestors were destitute. Our ancestors had no land. They wandered from watering hole to watering hole. Now, that means different things at different times. For example, in Abraham and Sarah's time, when they probably had 30 or 4 goats, it meant, I hope we can find green grass someone else has not already grazed. I hope we can find a watering hole someone else is willing to share. I hope we can sleep through the night without some marauding tribe come screaming over the dunes, killing the men and raping all of the women. In Jesus' time, he lived in a little village of about 300 people. He told a story about a vineyard owner who went down to the square early one morning to hire laborers. In Jesus' time, if one had no land, he was destitute, absolutely dependent upon finding work one day at a time. The vineyard owner came. He hired some. He didn't hire others. They needed work so desperately that when he came back at noon, he found some still waiting, hoping to be hired. He took them to the vineyards. He came back late that afternoon, and some men had been there all day, hoping somebody would come and hire them, because if no one came, their family would go without food. They had no bank accounts, no savings, no pocket full of money. They lived day by day. If one worked, one got a denarius, and a denarius would feed your family tonight. Tomorrow, you hope somebody would hire you again. But in my lifetime, having land and not having land was a big thing. I told you that my mother's people were sharecroppers. They absolutely were. They lived on the edge of someone else's farm. When I was a little boy, I lived with them, as did my mother, my little sister, while our dad was in Germany during World War II. Our dad was drafted late in 1943. We went to live with my grandparents because the oil company my dad worked for put us out of the company house. They lived on the edge of someone else's farm. They got to keep half of what they could produce. The other half went to the landowner. And the chance that the landowner would ever do anything about fixing up their house was a dream. It stood two feet off the ground. Winter winds came roaring under the house and up through the cracks in the floor. There was no natural gas, no butane, no electricity, a wood-burning fireplace, a pot-bellied stove. My father's people lived only three miles away. They were not wealthy but they owned 40 acres of land. 
And with 40 acres, they didn't have to give up half of what they could produce. They got to use it all. And when I was a little boy, it was fun to go to my grandmother Biggs's. My grandfather died when I was a toddler because on their land, he had planted peach trees, plum trees, apple trees, pear trees, big cultivated persimmon trees, pomegranate trees, and at least a dozen pecan trees because they owned land. You understand? To confess, my family were wandering Arameans. We've come from nowhere. Number two. Our fathers went down to Egypt and there became a great nation. They simply mean they had lots of kids, lots of grandkids. But the Egyptians treated us harshly, imposing hard labor, which means my family were slaves. My family were slaves. Mike Chafin, our district superintendent, called a district preacher's meeting in August for all the preachers and spouses to come on a Saturday morning, get to know each other a little bit better, for our district superintendent to outline things he wanted to see happen during the academic and conference year. He said, some of you do not know your bishop very well. I have a film this morning that might help you know him better. And they played it on the screen. I knew this story. I've known Bishop Hayes since he was a boy, maybe 11, 12 years old. I'm about six years older than he is. I was in high school. I knew his mother and father well. His mother died about four years ago, his father just last year. This story was a lot about his father, Dr. Robert E. Hayes Sr., and Wiley College in Marshall, Texas, 30 miles from my hometown. I know this story. Our bishop's great-grandfather was a slave. But when freedom came at the end of the great Civil War, he was told, get schooling. The way out is schooling. And he walked day after day to Marshall, Texas, where Methodists had built a college for young black students. His father, I mean his son, sorry, his son would go to Wiley College and become a Methodist preacher. And our bishop's father was sent to Wiley College after all the civil rights legislation of the 60s that made white universities now open to African Americans, really endangered the predominantly black schools at that time. Wiley College was having a difficult time. They told our bishop's father, go and find a dig dignified way to bury Wiley College. And he said, this school means too much to my family to bury. And he walked the campus getting to know the names of every student and what her dreams and what her problems were, what his dreams, what his problems were. And Wiley College is still going strong today. A couple of years ago, our bishop was the Canipa lecturer 
And he decided to share that night some things that happened to his family before the civil rights legislations of the 1960s. How when he was a boy, they wanted to take a summer vacation to Florida. But crossing those southern states was not as safe as it should have been. And even if it was safe, there were no motels in most of those communities across Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama for black people to stay. So he said, we got up early and my father drove hard because there was one place in Mississippi we could stay, a Methodist camp. We could spend the night and eat breakfast the next morning and go over to Florida. Where did your people come from? Most of us Americans came to this country because our families were having a hard time, of one kind or another, having a really difficult time. And they came to this land of opportunity, to this place where people could begin again. Number three, this Lord God who brought you out and then brought you in, out of Egypt, into Canaan, to him you're supposed to bring gifts. Linda Neukrog has written about going to a shopping mall at Christmas. She said she was running late. She had too many names on her list. She was frantically running from store to store to store, and suddenly she spotted this big Christmas tree right in the centermost part of the mall, the angel tree. Oh, no, she said, the angel tree. This is where, not names, but little children's wishes have been put on a little card on the limb of a tree. You're supposed to take a card and go to one of the stores and buy and bring back. She said, I took one of the things off the limb and hurried on down the hall to my next store. I got through there, and I walked into the biggest toy store in the mall and said to the woman who offered to help me, do you have a toy or a game or a DVD called Alarm Clock? And the saleswoman said, I've been here 13 years. We don't have a game. We don't have a toy. We don't have a DVD called Alarm Clock. And Linda said, well, that's what I got off the angel tree. And the salesperson said, there's a little code number over on the back where I can check a little bit more information. Some of these children have asked for clothes, and it gives sizes required and so on. So she plugged in this code number, and it came back. This was a little third-grade boy whose father left his mother and him whose mother is sometimes out with boyfriends, sometimes part-time jobs, often does not come home at night. And he doesn't wake up and get to school on time. So when he was asked, what would you like for Christmas more than anything else, he wrote, alarm clock. Reminded me of a story, something I knew. My best friend all the way through public schools at Carthage was a kid named Mike. His mother had a condition. I don't know enough about medicine to tell you, but every time she got pregnant, 
she had mental problems. Uh, hormones, something went berserk, and she ended up in the state mental hospital in Rusk, Texas. And she would be gone for six, eight, ten months, and she'd come home and get pregnant again. And she'd go back to Rusk, and she'd come home and get pregnant again. Mike was the oldest of seven. His father was a construction worker, and to find work in East Texas, often he was away. The family lived 16 miles on the opposite side of town from where I lived, six miles on the, on the east side. I rode six miles into town on a school bus every day for 12 years. Mike rode 16. Our senior year in high school, he was president of the senior class. I was president of the student body. I was a defensive captain of our football team. He was our fullback. In one of our biggest games that fall, he hurt his ankle. He was still hurting when he got home after the game. But he knew that the next morning he was supposed to be at work at a supermarket in Carthage. He worked at one. I worked at another supermarket every Saturday. He woke up with his ankle hurting, looked out the window. The eastern sky looked like it was getting brighter. So he got up and dressed and went out to the highway to catch a ride. It's a major highway from Houston to Texarkana. Trucks 24 hours a day when these truckers pulled over and picked him up. He said he was half asleep, so the truck driver said nothing to him. He said nothing to the truck driver. They got to Carthage. The truck driver let him out. He walked up on the porch of the supermarket, and the clock said it was 3.15. Because he didn't have a clock. In his house, there were no clocks. Not one that would alarm, not one that wouldn't alarm. No clocks. When he got a football scholarship to play for Texas A&M, when he got a degree in civil engineering, when he got a job with Exxon, do you think he was not grateful? But how can you appreciate more if you've never had less? Unless you've had less. This affirmation of faith, this credo, this confession of faith says, remember there was a time when your people had less and now you have more. So bring the basket of the first fruits of the land. Bring to the altar where God has put his name on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. To the temple, bring it there. Present that basket to the priest and then stand and confess your faith. A wandering Aramean was my father. He went down to Egypt, became a great nation, but he was harshly punished, persecuted. And then the Lord God, the I am who I am, the Eye Asher Eye, our Elohim, led him out, brought him out, brought him in to Canaan. I bring. Celebrate the Lord's bounty. Celebrate the Lord's bounty to you. You know that John and Elizabeth Sherrill are two of my favorite devotional writers. They're in their 80s now. I've been reading them both for 40 years probably. John has recently written about they're taking a cruise on the Rhine River. We've taken that cruise. The only thing is we went from Basel, Switzerland, down to Amsterdam. They were going upriver. John said we had made a couple of days... And one night he said, 
we had brushed our teeth, uh, you know, put on our jammies, and we were sound asleep. When suddenly I woke up in the middle of the night, and the ship was not moving upriver. It had sort of a strange movement left and right. So I looked out the little tiny porthole of our room, and I could see this metal steel wall alongside the ship, just inches away from the porthole. So I pulled on my pants and shirt, and I went up on top. And I saw that we were in a lock. That they had pulled the ship up into the lock, and then tons of water, now pouring into the lock, was lifting our ship. And then I remember reading, he said, that when one travels from Amsterdam to Basel, one in fact climbs 900 feet. The river drops 900 feet on that long route from Basel, Switzerland, down to Amsterdam. And so there is that series of locks to lift these ships. There in the middle of the night, I thought about communion back home and how our minister says, lift up your hearts. And we say, we lift them up unto the Lord. I never have been quite sure how to lift up my heart, John said. But I really think it's a matter of just opening the gate and letting God's Holy Spirit come pouring in, booing us up so that we can see the way home. 